Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This episode is about the entertainment industry's ableist exploitation of short-statured people in the early 20th century. When necessary in quoting historic newspapers, I've substituted the phrase the M-word for a highly offensive term. Other newspaper descriptions may offend. Listener discretion is advised. It's the afternoon of Saturday the 9th of December 1911 and Tiny Town is about to open at the Melbourne Hippodrome. The past few weeks since wrapping up in Adelaide have been hectic. After leaving the city of churches, Hayati Hasid, the mayor of Tiny Town, and his colleagues played five days in Broken Hill. There, 15,000 people paid for admission, half the entire population of the Silver City. Then the troop headed east overland, touring Bendigo, Ballarat and Geelong before arriving in Melbourne. Tiny Town's impresario, Beaumont Smith, has run big ads in the city's newspapers. One in the age says such press notices are actually of limited use. Quote, Tiny Town is its own advertisement. Words cannot describe it. The photographer and artist cannot reproduce it. Tiny Town is unique. There is nothing like it in the whole world. Melburnians buy it, literally. They've rushed to get tickets. And now at 2pm, when the doors open for this once-in-a-lifetime show, 3,000 people cram into the Hippodrome. This crowd and the 3,000 others who see the 7 o'clock show are delighted. The Age will call it, quote, one of the most remarkable pieces of entertainment enterprise ever presented in the city. And it says Tiny Town is populated by an amazing assemblage of very distinct and really talented personalities. First among equals, of course, is the charming Hayati Hasid, 
aka the Turkish Tom Thumb, aka the Mayor of Tiny Town, who, over these past couple of months, has become a real celebrity all across Australia. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part two of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Mayor of Tiny Town versus Australia's Shiftiest Showman. Parts three and four will go on release soon, but if you're an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter, you can hear them right now, ad-free. You'll also get access to a whole lot of exclusive bonus episodes, including The Wreck of the Errol, about a horrific 1909 tragedy near Lord Howe Island, and the three-part 1927 true crime epic, Revolvers and Razors. By becoming a supporter or subscriber, you're helping me to make Forgotten Australia. That's because I use funds to buy research materials, travel to locations, have old files digitized, basically anything to ensure I can bring you the most accurate, colorful, and detailed true stories. This episode, for instance, was inspired by a passing mention to Tiny Town in a secondhand book about Australian newspapers. And we're going to get insight from a formerly top secret file about the mayor of Tiny Town that I had digitized by the National Archives of Australia. Links to Apple and to Patreon are in your show notes, and subscribing or supporting will set you back about the same as a cup of coffee a month. In fact, the first three days are on me if you use Apple, because you can sign up for a free trial, no obligation. As we heard in part one, Tiny Town made its Australian debut in Adelaide, where it had been a huge success, with Beaumont Smith selling 60,000 tickets. The entire population of Adelaide was just 190,000 people. But Melbourne, population 590,000, was a far more lucrative market. Beaumont ensured there was plenty of publicity. Hayati Hasid was photographed for Punch magazine playing a game of billiards on a miniature table against a full-sized opponent. The writer of the caption also took the opportunity to note the upcoming nuptials between Tiny Town's lovebirds, Miss Alonka and her Huel and quoted the bride-to-be saying she was happy that Hayati would be the man to give her away. Beaumont Smith gave an interview to Table Talk magazine in Melbourne, and the text of this would be reused as a press release around Australia and overseas. He said that little people had fascinated the world since the time of Homer and Pliny, but they were no longer the stuff of myth and legend. They were just like us, only smaller. Quote, Our tiny town mayor is 56 years of age, and for all his 30 inches in height, he is heir to all the cares and worries common to ordinary-sized old gentlemen of the same age. A twinge of the gout, a haunting fear that his hair is falling out, a hideous suspicion that the young ladies are regarding him with less favour. Tiny town's mayor understands all these emotions, and so with the other quaint villagers. They are truly men and women with all the hopes and ambitions, feelings and emotions of full-size people. They object to being regarded as children. Yet despite Beaumont setting the tone with a humanistic approach, he also relished going into the scale details, relating how his performers wielded ridiculously small knives and forks to consume their little meals. One bread roll was enough for three men at breakfast. Ten of them would share a bottle of lager after dinner. Three men could comfortably bed down in one sleeping berth on a train, and 15 could get into a cab licensed to carry eight normal-sized passengers. The mayor of Tiny Town, Beaumont said, had been known to sleep as soundly as you or I in an overhead luggage rack or in a clothes basket. Despite Beaumont saying his performers didn't appreciate being treated like children, he for one was glad that authorities often offered them half-price fares on trains. 
Yet despite the savings he made on their food, accommodation and travel, he had to pay a premium for their clothing and for their shoes, which all had to be specially tailored and specially made. Tiny Town played 70 shows in Melbourne, representing about 200,000 tickets sold. Next, they headed for Sydney. The Harbour City was home to 630,000 people. Upon arrival at Central, they found themselves, as the Sun put it, quote, crushed and trodden on by a rushing crowd of people who wanted to show their interest in the people of Lilliput by walking on their heads. When the crowd had settled down, Hayati and others posed for photos with full-size Sydney folk. The Sydney Morning Herald provided readers with a delighted write-up on the forthcoming mayoral election. Hayati was pitted against lover boy Her Arthur Huell, who'd taken out an ad on the front page of the Tiny Town Times that read, Vote for Huell and get a younger mayor. By now the Tiny Town Times had sold 130,000 copies across 10 issues. Beaumont Smith gave an interview to The Sun that set out just how hard his performers worked. Quote, we give two performances a day, and they invariably rehearse in the mornings. They are continually inventing new turns or improving their present acts. They are strangely versatile little folk. He said the performers lived in a big house with a Viennese chef. Quote, If they were scattered around, one here, one there, probably they would not be such happy little people. Their shared house was a refuge, and venturing out proved difficult because they drew crowds wherever they went. Beaumont said, they cannot go shopping because they are jostled and almost smothered by the inquisitive. Even practicing religion was difficult. When they went to church in America, they attracted so much attention that the minister wrote a note to Mr. Zaynard asking that the troop leave, and saying that he'd provide a special service for them later on. But above all, Beaumont said, the chief annoyance was people treating them like kids. He said, Silly people come up to them so often and pat the little lady's cheeks and seize Tom Thumb in their arms like a bouncing baby. Imagine a lady of 30 being patted on the cheeks, and what's more, imagine our venerable mayor, aged 57, with a feeling and ideas of an ordinary elderly gentleman being treated in this way. There were other mundane annoyances too. Ordinary furniture, for instance, posed a challenge and the same went for cutlery, plates and sporting equipment. Arthur Huell wanted to try golf, but it just wasn't possible. Speaking of him and Miss Alonka, Beaumont said, In their love affairs, they are just as serious as other people, though some think it is a joke for them to have such feelings. Wrapping up, Beaumont said that as their manager, there were no disadvantages to their size for him. If they were not little, there would be no tiny town. But it is not only their size nor is it altogether the extraordinary entertainment they give that make them such an attraction. Their charming manners and delightful personalities are what grip so strongly and set you pondering deeply after you have conversed with them. Sydney-siders seem to agree. The exhibition building in Prince Alfred Park was packed on opening day, Saturday the 3rd of February, and Tiny Town would play 120 shows over the next two months. Early in the run, the elections were held again. Six-time Mayor Hayati defended his role not only against upstart lover boy Her Arthur Huell, but also against a third contender. This was Constable David John Armstrong, himself getting a fair share of press as the Australian Tom Thumb and also as the world's smallest Freemason. Election coverage was relayed in detail in The Sun, 
which said the split of nationalities, Turkish, German and Australian, was going to make the contest all the more interesting. Same went for the political split. Constable Armstrong was a Labour man. Hayati was conservative. Arthur Huell, a progressive. Voting started on the 17th of February. By 10.30 that night, Constable Armstrong had the lead, with 1,771 votes. But it was a close race. Hayati was on 1,748 votes and Arthur Huell on 1,693. Additionally, there'd been 27 informal ballots cast, presumably by tiny children who didn't know what the hell they were doing. If nothing else, this one-day result, however it had been massaged, indicated that well over 5,000 visitors had taken the time to get in on the fun. A week later, The Sun provided a follow-up report. Likely cribbed from the tiny town Times, it breathlessly described closed-door political shenanigans. Hayati, now neck and neck with Constable Armstrong, had convinced her Arthur Huell to drop out of the race. That would mean Hayati was likely to receive more of the votes in the remaining days of the election. And so it came to pass. Hayati triumphed, scoring a total of 13,892 votes to Constable Armstrong's 13,710. It was a close-run election. Hayati was mayor for a seventh consecutive term. Constable Armstrong was down, but he wasn't out. In his concession speech, he said he'd run again next time. These elections, the campaigns, the intrigue, the ongoing coverage, it was all a clever ploy to maintain interest in Tiny Town. And it's likely some fans, or maybe even many fans, made return visits to vote again and ensure their man got across the line. Tiny Town's electoral returns were interesting, but not as intriguing as Tiny Town's financial results. Coinciding with this election, the company declared its third 50% dividend in the past four months. So every £100 share had returned £150 so far. On the occasion of this success, Beaumont told The Sun how he'd been met with derision when he'd first made his decision to tour Tiny Town Down Under. Quote, When I first suggested bringing this unique attraction to Australia, I was laughed at by the wise heads of the theatrical profession, and the scheme was more or less ridiculed. Some went so far as saying that the Commonwealth Government should prevent my bringing what they were pleased to term these undesirable people to Australia. Gloating just a little, Beaumont went on. It is a stranger thing still that since Tiny Town has commenced to pay big dividends with unfailing regularity, practically all these wise men appear to have reversed their opinions. Beaumont was happy to explain how the money was being made. Our profits are derived from so many different sources. The sales of our postcards alone would represent the takings of some small theatres, and when we add the takings from refreshments, souvenirs, our little newspaper, advertising, etc., the weekly amount is very considerable. But Beaumont was also at pains to convey that the good fortune was being shared around. Quote, As regards salaries, it must not be thought that Tiny Town's big profits are made through paying small salaries. But of course, he didn't divulge what his performers were being paid. Instead, he said, Our little people are adults and have all the adults' knowledge of their own worth. Most of them are in a position to retire from their professions if they so desired, and a number have properties of their own in their own homeland. 
Beaumont said that the little people got a cut of the merchandise they sold, showing the reporter a printing order for one million postcards, which, quote, I estimate will last us no longer than 10 weeks. That meant they were selling 100,000 postcards a week, plus 4,500 six-penny booklet souvenirs, some 11,000 copies of each edition of the Tiny Town Times. Beaumont said, From memory, I'll calculate we sell close on 2,500 photos at a shilling each week. On top of all of this, they had a mail-order business for people who couldn't actually get to Tiny Town. More of Hayati's personality also came through in Sydney news items. It was reported that he was such an animal lover, he didn't join a tiny town fishing excursion because he thought it was cruel. Along these lines, Hayati had recently sheltered a stray fox terrier, this dog sitting beside him in the office he used for his mayoral and editorial duties. But the foxy had gotten lost or been stolen, and it hadn't been recovered despite Hayati offering a one guinea reward. But the mayor had some consolation at the end of March 1912 when the Ladies' Kennel Club held its annual dog parade at the agricultural grounds at Moore Park and invited Hayati to be their guest of honour. This was a huge event, attracting some 20,000 visitors. Beaumont Smith, who'd be a motion picture producer himself in just a few years, was cautious about letting his performers be captured by the film cameras. But this time, he relented for the newsreels. Sadly, this footage is lost, though if you check eBay, you'll likely find a whole selection of Tiny Town souvenir postcards and photos. By mid-April 1912, just as news was filtering through that the Titanic had gone to the bottom of the Atlantic, it was time for Tiny Town to move on from Sydney. While Beaumont had initially contracted his players for six months, the extraordinary success of the show meant he could be confident now that he could conquer the rest of the country. So Tiny Town would do another half year down under. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. How did Australia's most famous anti-hero end up being hanged by a miserable chicken thief? That was the question I set out to answer when I researched and wrote my new book, Hanging Ned Kelly. A deep dive into the darkest corners of colonial Australia, Hanging Ned Kelly is a beautiful hardback published by a firm press. It comes with plenty of photos and illustrations. So if you enjoy this podcast, I reckon you're going to love it. And it'll make a great Christmas gift for any loved one who's into Australian true crime and Australian history, but isn't into podcasts. You can buy Hanging Ned Kelly wherever books are sold. Okay, on with the show. Tiny Town went from Sydney to Parramatta to Kiama to Tamworth, Orange and to Dubbo. Then they were off to Queensland. After Queensland, they were back to Adelaide, where more financial results were released. In the past eight months, they'd sold four to five million postcards, 100,000 souvenir booklets and about 45,000 photographs. 
the company had just paid a 100% dividend, and that came after six other 50% dividends. So if you owned one of those 100 pound shares, you still had a 100 pound share, and you'd also been paid 400 pounds. Simply adjusted for inflation, that's like investing $15,000 and eight months later, still having a $15,000 investment and an extra 60 grand in the bank. In Adelaide in July, another election was called, with Hayati again up against Arthur Huell and Constable Armstrong. Hayati, the Adelaide Mail said, was using the tiny town times to rate his competition, quote, almost, if not, libelously. But never mind. Hayati was elected again. The following month, August, Tiny Town was back in Victoria and soon after that visited Tasmania. Next, it was across the Tasman to New Zealand, with Hayati making a few extra quid by endorsing Flusanol. His testimonial reading, quote, On my arrival in Dunedin from Australia, I was suffering from a severe cold which prevented me from singing. I was recommended to try Flusanol and after gargling but two doses, my throat was all right. Hayati gave a number of interviews in Kiwiland that weren't about quack remedies. Speaking to the Manawatu Times on the 16th of September, who found him, quote, just the usual stamp of a man his age, addicted to comfortable chairs and possibly an occasional whiskey and soda, he said that this was his first visit to New Zealand, though he'd been to just about every other country under the sun. Hayati said he enjoyed learning as much as he could about the places he visited and he regretted he hadn't yet been able to discover as much about New Zealand as he would have liked. This genuine curiosity about his surroundings would be used against him a few years hence by another showman named Frederick Hooper-Jones. But that lay in the war-torn future. For the moment, talking to the Manawatu Times, Hayati said he didn't notice being small. Quote, You see, I have always been the same. It would seem funny to me if all the people in the world were reduced to my height. But there were, he admitted, disadvantages. In Sydney recently, he'd crossed a road that was a little muddy. It was enough to engulf his shoe right up to the ankle. If only he wasn't just the mayor of Tiny Town. Hayati said, If I were mayor of Sydney, I would make my men keep the streets clean. While Hayati was talking to the press, Beaumont Smith was showing his canniness by rejecting a camera offer. Frenchman Gaston Méliès, ne'er-do-well brother of Georges Méliès, the world-renowned silent film wizard who made the iconic 1903 sci-fi A Trip to the Moon, had sailed from San Francisco for the South Seas with his motion picture crew. Before leaving, he told the San Francisco Call newspaper, quote, I believe the public is getting a little tired of cowboys and the prairie life of America. I'm going to try to get something new. Gaston Méliès wanted to make a mixture of dramatic and educational films, and he would actually film a number of surviving, historically important films featuring Maoris. But he also wanted to make a fully scripted dramatic film about fairies, and he wanted to star the tiny townsfolk. Gaston reportedly offered Beaumont a tremendous sum. Beaumont said, no way. See, while the occasional newsreels offered the public a taste of Tiny Town, anything more substantial might risk ruining the audience's appetite for the live experience. Why, as Beaumont pointed out, just a few years ago, another Little People troupe in Europe had consented to make a similar film. Within months, they were out of business, supposedly being told by theatrical managers, 
We don't want your act now. It has been shown at the picture show down the street. Tiny Town returned to Sydney for a brief encore season. The New Zealand tour had been a success, although there'd been a bit of a scare when Hayati had a fall that resulted in him being unconscious for a couple of hours. Fortunately, no lasting damage was done. But Hayati by now had other causes for concern. While the Italian-Turkish war was coming to an end, a new conflict was set to erupt. Known later as the First Balkan War, it pitted Turkey against Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece and Montenegro. And this would be another disaster for the Ottoman Empire and bring the world another step closer to the Great War. With things looking so bad, Hayati had encouraged his widowed sister-in-law to leave Turkey and resettle in New York. While she was safe and he was sending her remittances, he remained concerned about happenings in his homeland, and each day he read the newspapers for the latest updates. Hayati's fellow tiny townsfolk used this to play rather cruel pranks. As the son explained, quote, He reads English, but slowly, and many a time practical jokers reading the morning news had invented a terrible story of a great Turkish defeat and the loss of 30 or 40,000 Turks killed. These occasions were days of distress for Tom, but sometimes the practical jokers would tell him that the Italian army had almost been annihilated. On the first annihilation, he bought a large bottle of wine, but not since. He hardly knows now whether to believe this Balkan trouble or not when it is read out to him, for he has been had so often. While this yarn was darkly comic, it also illustrated a couple of things. One, Hayati was deeply concerned about what was happening in Europe. Two, his English wasn't as good as it was cracked up to be in the publicity material. And this left him vulnerable to practical jokers and also to those with more sinister motives. But for the moment, Tiny Town's return to Australia was the occasion of happier real news. That long-awaited marriage of Miss Alonka and her Arthur. The Sun reported, quote, Many people thought their engagement to be an imaginary one, simply invented by the management for business reasons. But it turns out that it was perfectly genuine, and the little couple were wedded quietly in Melbourne a few weeks ago. The paper said they'd wanted it to be private, and Beaumont Smith had agreed. He told The Sun, There is so much publicity in their career, and I thought it would be a cruel thing to have them stared and gaped at at that most sacred moment of their lives. Once the news was out, wedding presents flooded in from all over Australia and the world. Their wedding cake was enormous, taller than the couple, and at 100 pounds it was heavier too. Pieces of that cake would be given to visitors to the limited number of shows to be held at Sydney's Town Hall, and there they'd also be able to see Miss Alonka's wedding dress. There was also speculation at this time that Hayati had finally found love with one of the tiny town's ladies. But the woman in question, Miss Paola, set the sun straight, saying that Tom was too old and she didn't really want a Turk for a husband. Hayati Hasid was destined to remain a bachelor. Now though, it was time for Tiny Town to head for Western Australia. When they arrived in Perth, the Daily News reported, quote, there was a general expression of astonishment at their smallness by those near enough to see them, 
With some difficulty, a passageway was formed between two masses of full-sized humanity, and the procession of little people to the waiting conveyance began. Then it could be seen that the tiny town men and women were not, as many had expected, stunted, depressed specimens of the human family, but perfectly formed models of men and women. Tiny Town started its season at His Majesty's on Saturday the 9th of November. After eight days, they took the show to Fremantle and then the Goldfields and finally to Albany. They'd now been touring Australia for 13 months, playing two shows a day most days, racking up some 700 performances. Most of these venues had held two or 3,000 people, so even with repeat visitors, it's feasible that one million Australians had seen the spectacle of Tiny Town and had mingled with its mayor and citizens. Tiny Town had conquered Australia. And now they were sailing over the horizon for Cape Town. Tiny Town would play 50 shows in Africa, travelling 4,000 miles by rail. Beaumont Smith would chalk it up as a successful tour, even if they had to play in big tents often because there simply weren't large enough venues to accommodate the show. Next, it was to Europe, briefly, before sailing on for a tour of Canada. But Hayati Hasid, the mayor of Tiny Town, well, he was done. He elected not to be elected again, but to return to Sydney with newspapers astonished that such a small man had made such a big voyage all alone. So why had he quit Tiny Town? This wasn't explained. The best guess is he was simply exhausted and couldn't face spending another six months or more on the road. But even so, Hayati was still promoted as being part of Tiny Town in Canada, his role seemingly taken over by an understudy who also assumed his name. On the 9th of July 1913, the Ottawa citizens spruced him as the star attraction. The Daily Standard in Kingston, Ontario did the same thing a week later. As for the hardships of life on the road, Beaumont was to later estimate they'd travelled 100 miles per day to reach towns in the Canadian interior. But Tiny Town was not the success he'd hoped for. He was to recall that the show faced stiff competition from Ringlings, Barnum and Bailey and Buffalo Bill's Wild West show with all of these acts duking it out for circus supremacy in Canada that summer. So maybe Hayati had made a good call by going back to Australia. In New South Wales, he played on variety programs for vaudeville promoter JC Bain. In Newcastle in June 1913, he shared the bill with the amusingly named Come In and See Em, Acrobatic Comedians, and Stampini, promoted as the steel-skinned Italian who walks barefooted on naked swords. The following month, Hayati headlined at the Prince's Theatre in Sydney, billed as the Turkish Tom Thumb, late mayor of Tiny Town, the most phenomenal M-word man in existence. That both of these engagements lasted for weeks suggested that Hayati was still drawing a crowd. Nevertheless, he appears to have taken a break and, when he next appeared for two days in November at the Ballarat show, it was billed as absolutely his last appearance in Australia. Yet that same promise was used to promote him when he did two shows in Narracourt in South Australia a couple of weeks later. The Narracourt Herald spruked, quote, He has been the guest on his Australian tour of Admiral King Hall and Lord Mayors of Brisbane and Sydney. 
He has also performed by royal command before the late King Edward, the German Emperor, the President of France, and ex-President Taft of America. Hayati had taken a step down from places like the Hippodrome and was now appearing under canvas near the Narracourt supply stores and next to the Weybridge on Friday and Saturday. The former mayor of Tinytown worked the South Australian circuit in early 1914, Port Augusta, Clare, Blythe, and he was now under the management of Frederick Hooper-Jones. But while Beaumont Smith had cancelled Tiny Town's first ever South Australian show because he was waiting for props to arrive and didn't want to disappoint the audience, these budget shows weren't run quite as smoothly. The Northern Argus reported there'd been a large attendance at the Blythe Town Hall show. Hayati, it said, had contributed several vocal items and a good program of electric light pictures had been screened. Yet many had been disappointed that the program advertised had not been carried out. The promotions that went with these shows were far cruder than what Beaumont Smith had put into the world. An example, the Blythe agriculturalist said Hayati, quote, has been the greatest attraction all over the world and is under engagement to go to the Panama exhibition. The company is a strong one and under the capable management of Fred Jones, well known in this district. Upon arriving at Clare, Fred put this into the papers, quote, Tom says he has heard that Claire possesses many beautiful young ladies, and as he is looking for an Australian wife, he thinks he may be lucky in Claire. When these shows rolled into a new town, a reception would be staged for Hayati, where he'd tell his life story and promise much for his upcoming performance. He'd also say that when people came along to see the show, he'd be happy to sign autographs and sell postcards and photos. Reports at this time said Hayati travelled with some 60 costumes that were worth hundreds of pounds. The show toured Renmark, Port Elliot, Strathalbyn, Mount Pleasant, Mount Barker, Port Lincoln, Kangaroo Island. The program consisted of singers, comedians, electric light pictures and the marvellous cyclones, which was some sort of stage-bound bicycle racing that the audience could have a go at. There was Horace Bradley, quaint comedian, Roy Lawrence, female impersonator, and Fred Degenhart, a musical novelty jokester. While it wasn't on the scale of Tiny Town, they did play to packed houses. Unlike Beaumont Smith, Fred Jones wanted Hayati to be filmed. Likely, he made this movie himself, and from Saturday the 25th of July, for six days only, Hayati appeared in person at Adelaide Star Theatre to present the reels and to narrate his life story. This movie presentation was part of a program that included a film called The Air Torpedo. It was a two-reeler that was, quote, the most sensational film of modern-day warfare and introduces the aeroplane in war, showing the horrors of international strife. No doubt Fred Jones had plenty of opinions about this motion picture because just a few years ago, he'd been a pioneer of Australian aviation. On the 28th of July 1914, three days into Hayati's film run at the Star Theatre, the Great War began. He must have been absolutely mortified, but glad that, for the time being at least, the Ottoman Empire was neutral. Fred Jones tried to drum up extra interest in Hayati by advertising his final shows at the Star Theatre as being his last South Australian appearances. That of course wasn't true. Just a few days later, he was on stage at Port Adelaide. Then it was Border Town. 
and here he gave interviews to the local papers. The Border Chronicle reported that Hayati, quote, took a great interest in the war of the Balkan states, for he was born at Salonika, and he is following the European calamitous conflict with intense interest. He declares Turkey entering this cataclysm would be madness, and that England and allies, whose only crime is righteousness, should win this war of the century, and despoil for once and forever the tyrannous and blatant plans of Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. The impression this quote from Hayati gives is that he a really didn't want Turkey in the war, b was firmly on the side of Australia and her allies, and c realised that as a so-called Turk, he was now in a precarious position. So long as the Ottoman Empire stayed out of the war, he might be all right. Hayati, Fred Jones and company crossed into Victoria and worked the country towns. Waraknabil, Rapunyup, Dimbula, typically playing one show a week. There was a lot of travel, but the distances weren't as great as they'd been for Tiny Town and the workload was less. Each of the newspaper notices typically repeated the same spiel and concluded with, quote, Owing to extensive arrangements, the company can appear for one night only. They went on, Horsham, Ararat, Port Ferry, Mortlake. The benefit to a budget showman of these one-night-only shows was that if it was a disappointment, word of mouth didn't really matter that much. Then, in November 1914, Hayati's status changed, at least officially. The Ottoman Empire had formally joined the war on the side of the Central Powers. Hayati Hasid was now an enemy alien. You couldn't really blame him for wanting to leave the country. After all, he'd already had the experience of being humiliated and detained at New York's Ellis Island. The prospect of being interned in Australia was hardly appealing. But Fred Jones didn't want him to go. Why would he? The Turkish Tom Thumb was his star attraction. So, on the 21st of January 1915, Fred Jones decided to secretly dob Hayati in to the military authorities. No bones about it, it was a bastard act. He knew that Hayati posed absolutely no threat. What he wanted was the little man intimidated, restricted and placed further under his control. Who was Frederick Hooper Jones and why did he so callously betray his star attraction Hayati Hasid? In the third and fourth instalments of this episode, I'll be using Ancestry.com.au and historic newspapers, along with Hayati Hasid's formerly secret military intelligence file, to bring you the story of Australia's shiftiest showman and how he made life hell for the mayor of Tiny Town. Parts 3 and 4 will be released in the next week, but if you're an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter, you can hear them right now ad-free. To get early ad-free access to every episode and to get exclusive bonus episodes, check out the links in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.